Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. And welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where two brothers answer all your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, what is the elephant in the room? Oh, Hank, I think we both know what the elephant in the room is this week. Yeah. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a no-brainer elephant. Absolutely. Three, two, one, The Michael insignificance Cohen. of everything we do. I mean, they're related. They're related. <laughs> How many times do I have to make Michael Cohen the elephant in the room until I get to feel that magical moment when you also say Michael Cohen and we can finally have a Michael Cohen focused podcast segment, which I've been begging you for for months. Hank, all of the most famous podcasters, the way that they get huge is by talking about Michael Cohen. I'm sorry. What is what is the insignificance of everything that we do? Just in general, like the, the, the sun is such a very small thing and it's so very big and the space between the stars is is immense and the space between the galaxies is even more immense than that hey we only matter to each other john and and i guess that's i guess that's kind of beautiful and okay and also we matter to each other so tremendously much right we we all have the capacity to bring each other solace and joy Mm -hmm and Mm -hmm. fear and terror and horror we we matter to each other so much we matter to other life on earth so much we matter a little bit to the moon we might even eventually (laughs) matter some to mars so i I think that our mattering is expanding which is great but i think the core of our mattering is always going to be in how we treat each other and how we take care of each other and speaking of taking care of people who have taken care of you looks like michael (laughs) cohen uh the quasi-attorney of the President of the United States, uh, who is under investigation for a wide variety of crimes, might be flipping. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the moment, if I'm Michael Cohen, the moment President Donald Trump gets elected president, I'm like, this isn't going to turn out great for me, is it? I, I bet that, yes, I would think that would be my first thought. I would think I... 
am going to be in the spotlight and yeah. I feel that if light is shown in this area of my life, there's going to be some uncomfortabilities. Right. Like maybe do you, how many people do you think said to Donald Trump, like, you know, maybe your life is not one that needs an excessive amount of scrutiny. Like this might not be something that should be like all the, sh the light shown in all the different little crevices. Probably, probably the most, the most dangerous thing you could do for the way that you have lived thus far is to, to sign up to be the most looked at person in the world. And to be fair, I think one of the arguments that Trump supporters will make is that Trump had very little to gain from the presidency and in yeah. fact, in many ways, a lot to lose. And yeah. so that that would, would be an argument that Trump's presidency really is born of a desire to serve, of a belief that, you know, he could bring positive change to the country uh, and even though it would negatively affect him personally it would be worth that sacrifice for the larger good of the country and that is an argument um, it, it doesn't <laughs> jibe with other things that I see completely in, in the way that uh, he's run his administration but I am definitely open to that argument. Uh, I just think that this is a big news story. I think it's an important news story. I think because it's salacious and it it, it, mm -hmm. it has the feel of gossip at times, uh, it, it doesn't right. get treated like an important news story. I've been listening right, or, to Slow yeah. Burn, the podcast about Watergate that tries to mm -hmm. recreate the experience of Watergate as it unfolded. And something similar was happening during Watergate where there was a lot of like, oh, this is, you know, salacious stuff about dirty tricks and with all of these over-the-top personalities. And it, it only unfolded slowly that people started to think like, oh, and also this is a quite a serious thing. Yeah, right. And, it, it, and I think that like both from the perspective of like the how the, it's being treated in the news media, but also how it gets treated in our own heads. We're like, well, this is about like, you know, a sex scandal. And that's not like, are we are we still having sex scandals? Is that something that's still that important in this day and age? But it's it's not. It's it's not a sex it, scandal. And I think that like we sort of like half treat it like a sex scandal, and then you can be written off because of that. But it's not. Right. It's part of part of a lot of different a lot of different wrongdoings. Well, we'll see. We don't know yet. There's a lot we don't know, and I don't want to get ahead of the facts. But uh, did we did we do the thing that you wanted to do? Do we have our Michael Cohen? Oh no! Segment? I'm, oh no! He'll be the elephant in the room next week. Don't you worry. <laughs> I just whenever whenever we figure out what the elephant in the room is I always just go to Twitter and look at what the top trending hashtag is and John this week it's Michael Cohen it actually was <laughs> I, I should have gone with you I was right all right well John as you know there are people who listen to this podcast and they send us questions and I feel like we wouldn't be doing our duty unless we did answered some of their questions eventually so let's do that this next question comes from Lauren who asks dear Hank and John in the internship I have at my college this summer one of the major things I'm doing is calling prospective students to gauge their interest in school and such I'm supposed to be a resource to these potential students so I introduce myself at the beginning of each call and leave my phone number sometimes though I have to call someone who has my same first name it just feels very weird to leave a voicemail saying hi lauren this is lauren what should i do should i lie change my name when it's raining it's lauren you just gotta make a joke out of it yeah 
No, you change your name, not permanently, just for right. the sake of the call. So, yeah, you see, the person so, doesn't hi. care, frankly, if your name is Lauren. So, right. and this to me, it gives you a great opportunity. Now, you can only do this when you're calling Lauren's. You can't do it every time because it'll be seductive and super fun, and you'll want to do it every time, and you can't. But every time you're calling a Lauren, they answer, they say hello, and you say hi, this is Bette Midler from Florida State University. And they say, what? And you say, this is Bette Midler. I'm a student at Florida State University. I'm calling because I know you've been admitted to the school, and I was just wondering how you feel about it. <laughs> I love that you chose Bette Midler. Well, I just think it's the perfect, that's, that's a name that prospective college students will really resonate with, you know, because they remember Wind Beneath My Wings. Um, I, they saw yes. beaches. Bet Bet Midler is good. I think I think in general, like e, e, something a little bit obscure is excellent. You could also be like, "Hi, Lauren. This is Manhole. I'm calling from Florida State <laughs> University, and I just wanted to let you know that we're really interested in, in giving you as much information as you want on on the great programs we have at FSU." Okay, this is you're you're on to something here, Hank. Which is that it, what happens when because nobody's listening to the beginning of the call anyway. What happens when you try an increasingly obscure and and absurdist series of things? Right, like what happens if you're like. Hi, Lauren. Uh, this is a gang of turkeys calling from Florida State University. There's 17 of us. Um, we were just wondering how you feel about Florida State's excellent classical music program. We have four uh, four classical music majors here among our gang of 17 turkeys who are making this phone call. Be happy to connect you with one of them directly. I'm an anthrop anthropology major. Hi. Hi, Lauren. This is... One scissor. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, is that possible? Yes, because uh, scissors are a pair of scissors. I'm just one of them. My pair, my, my other pair is, my other friend is calling, uh, calling a different Lauren right now. I'm basically a knife. <laughs> anyway, basically how do you a knife with a loopy FSU? handle. Anyway, FSU is really great. I've had a really, really positive experience here. Hey, Lauren, have you ever been driving alone at night and you're filled with a sort of vague melancholy, but not an unpleasant one? That's me here to call you about FSU. What do you think? Would you like to go to college here? Don't feel pressure. I know there's a lot of great schools. Oh, God. Urgent help. I was hammering some holes into a belt. When I was putting the belt away, I dropped the hammer on the marble floor. And now there's a chip and a dent in the floor. What do I do? I live with my parents. And if they see this, I'm going to be in very big trouble. Help, Talita. All right, Talita. You're not going to be able to do anything about the dent, but you're going to fix the chip and you're going to fix it quickly. No, no, no. You can fix it all, John. You don't, you don't, you could, you could fix the dent and the chip. How do you fix the dent? You get a, you get a sculpture that goes over the dent that's beautiful and that everybody would be like, wow, what an elegantly placed sculpture. Such a good idea. Way better than my strategy of super gluing the chip back into where it chipped off from. Much, <laughs> much better. The next time your parents come home, they're like, what the heck is this? And you, you just say like, oh, this is a sculpture that I made right. of yeah. David. And your parents are going to be like, this is incredible. And you'll yeah. be like, yeah, I know. I did a really good job. So this is where the sculpture lives. By the way, it's a site-specific sculpture. Yeah, it's site-specific. So you can't move it around mm -hmm. in the room because then it's just ruined. 
Right. It, well, and maybe David's like holding a, 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 like a cup of coffee and it's just very full. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or maybe like David's reaching for the uh, little tug on the ceiling fan. Right. You know, so if you put it anywhere else in the room, like what's he reaching for? It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're welcome, Toledo. We've solved uh-huh. your problem. Okay. This next well, question we- comes from Leanne, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I recently decided to play matchmaker and set up two of my friends from different social circles. The date went really well, and now both of them can't stop telling me how wonderful the other person is. As happy as I am for them, how do I stay impartial? What if they start coming to me with their relationship problems? I was okay with giving them advice before with other people, but now it's just a little weird because I know both of them so well. Should I leave them to it? Should I keep a bunch of secrets for both of them from the other person? How do I, what do I do? I don't want to be the middleman, Leanne. Yeah, Leanne, you are, you are worried, so worried about a problem that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, you're good, Leanne. This, I mean, like, you don't know that any of these things are going to happen. I mean, do you know these people well enough that they're like, they always come to you with relationship advice with every relationship they have? Maybe that's going to happen. But I don't know. Maybe it won't because they are aware that you're good friends with the other person that you set them up on the date with. And they're probably going to be like, well, probably not going to go to Leanne because the other person is a good friend of Leanne. I think that there's a certain also, amount of... there's the 95% chance that this couple is going to be broken up within a month. Oh, dang, John. Maybe not. Don't you think? I don't know. It'd be interesting. You've you've done the math more than I have. What what uh what percentage of relationships uh, last forever? N- zero. <laughs> <laughs> do you mean what relation? What do you mean? What percentage of relationships last until death? No, I mean what percentage of relationships last until marriage? Oh, it's got to be pretty low, at least based on my own personal experience. <laughs> I mean, it's very high based on mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I suspect that we're outliers. And I, I suspect the truth is somewhere in the middle, like somewhere between like 48 serious relationships and two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there has to be, there has to be like somebody, somebody has to have done this research and I cannot, I cannot find it. At my rehearsal dinner, my friend Dean uh, gave a toast. You may remember this, Hank, in which he talked about me uh, coming home from meeting Sarah for the first time and I came back to the apartment and I said, you know, I think I'm going to marry that girl. I really do. And Dean said, it was only the 17th time John had said that to me. <laughs> John, I found the graph and the risk of breakup is very high in the beginning. So around 80, 75, 80% of couples will break up in the first year of their relationship, which is actually a little bit, you know, I kind of expect to be higher than that. Yeah, but then a number of couples break up in their second year. Right. Not everybody, like, dates for a year and then gets married. And then I I think the over Leanne, the overall chances that this relationship is going to be, like, the defining romantic relationship of these two people's lives is under 10%. So let's wait to panic. Okay. We're going to wait to panic. I completely agree. In general, wait to panic is great, great advice. Not don't panic. Uh, I mean, just like if I could... yeah. One, just give it a couple of breaths. I might tattoo that on me somewhere. Wait, yeah. wait to panic. I, I could really stand to have wait to panic on the inside of my wrist. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I, I'd like to have tattooed somewhere, like maybe under my eyelids so that I could see it every time I close my eyes, uh, would be, this is temporary. <laughs> Which yeah. is also 
in all the best ways and all the worst ways constantly true yeah it's good it's good to recognize both because of the good and the bad hank i feel like we're going a little dark can we liven things up with maybe like some grease too or alvin and the chipmunks what do you got for me well this question is from alexis who asks dear hank and john nobody in my family eats the first and last pieces of bread the the heel as they were called in our family i don't know if everybody else calls us that i feel bad just throwing those out so you don't have any suggestions for what i could do thanks a lot i don't have a car but if i did it would be alexis you eat them no yeah you make a sandwich out of them and be like i'm even having a sandwich no and basically because it's made out of the heel it's sort of like calorie neutral because you're doing a social good (laughs) yeah if only that were true (laughs) no no you do not eat the heel pieces no? of a bro- no, no 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 and you Do put you i just really? like took peanut butter on one of them and put them together nothing else and it's just uh, like it's a nice little snack you don't like it what's wrong with this is uh, there is there something that i'm missing like is there is there a danger you, you remember know what? when we were little kids and mom would cut the crusts off of our peanut butter and jelly sandwich and they were yeah. so good it's and better then that way we got a little older and she stopped cutting off mm-hmm. the crust because we were, you know, older now. And that was just the way the world works. You got to learn to live with a certain amount of suffering with your peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> yeah. What you're proposing, Hank, is you're proposing eating a crust sandwich. And like, yeah. I, you know, John, I, only I am. eat the crust because of the rest of the sandwich being like good enough for me to understand that I have to suffer through this crust part because I am an adult and that's how life works. Right. I'm not exactly. Gonna, I'm not no, that is exactly what I'm telling eat you. A whole crust sandwich. I'm saying that you not only uh, should do this. I'm saying that you have to do this. This is part of being a human being is having some subpar experiences because this is the way that the world works. And and like they baked the bread and the bread had to have an edge and all of the bread was food. Hank. Yes. I'm I'm, not, you know how I feel about this, John, ultimately, mm, is that I don't yeah. actually care at all. And I like just I went real hard on something that I have. I have like I may be yeah. like a one out of ten in terms of the strength of my opinion. Well, I would also argue that the strength of your overall argument is pretty low. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's why my my opinion is also low, because it was not a good argument. But I don't I don't mind eating a heel sandwich. I do remember in the past, I would actually go like two or three slices in to get like the best bread, not just not eat the heel. I wouldn't eat like the second or third slice. Uh, yeah, I still do that. I give the second and third slices to my children. They don't know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I like about uh, Oren's sandwiches? So when we make mm. Oren a sandwich now, we cut it up into little bits so it's easier for him to grab and eat. And like, and then you get some pieces that are crusty, but then the middle ones are like, they're, they're basically like tiny sandwiches with no crust. And it's very, very hard for me not to eat one or two of those when he's oh. having a sandwich. Have you ever had an Uncrustable? I've heard about them. Um, oh, my God. I, 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 people in the office eat them. Oh, my God. Uncrustables. They're just, they're just magic. Just when you thought processed food couldn't become any more perfect, along comes the Uncrustable, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with no crust in a circular shape that, if pressed, you can eat all in one bite. <laughs> I, I just Googled Uncrustable. It looks like a pie. Is yeah, it not a it's, pie? It's a delicious peanut butter and jelly pie. This next question comes from Christopher, who writes, Dear 
Hank, but mainly John. It's my kind of question, Christopher. I've been invited to a World Cup soccer pool by a co-worker. On a related note, I just learned that there's a World Cup this year. I don't know anything about soccer, but I want to make work friends and such. And I'm also quite competitive, and I think it's important that I win this pool. So what strategy should I use? Or better yet, can you just tell me who's going to win? Soccer pool loafer, Christopher. Christopher, I am happy to help. Christopher, you're in a pretty simple situation. You would not have been invited into this World Cup pool if they did not think that you were dead money. That is a person who will definitely lose. So mm. the worst that can happen is exactly what everyone else expects is going to happen. If you can bet on Brazil, do. If you can bet on Germany or France or Spain, do. Everyone else is a long shot, but some long shots are longer than others. Saudi Arabia, for instance, is not going to win the World Cup, nor is Australia. My best dark horse pick, Uruguay. There you go. That's all I got. Good. Well done, John. Um, I just found a YouTube video. I'm sorry. It's something about soccer makes me immediately open a new tab. I apologize. And I do believe in the, and I think I may even make my whole video this week about how much I believe in, in the goodness of the World Cup. But oh, I found a video so from a creator who said, if you eat Uncrustables, you need to watch this. And the first comment on it is, get bent, you kill joy. <laughs> that's like remember when uh people started eating chipotle when chipotle first came out and everybody was like man this healthy mexican food is so healthy and so delicious i could eat tons of it and then somebody made a website called chipotlecalculator.com and you went to it and you <laughs> yeah. told the calculator all the stuff that was in your burrito and then it told you that your burrito contained 17 days worth of food <laughs> And everybody's response to it was like, hey, Chipotle calculator inventor, shut up and go away. I'm trying to enjoy my Chipotle. <laughs> I was happy for five minutes. <laughs> if you if you eat Uncrustables, you need to watch this. Oh, no, my God. I bet I don't. She's I got a whole series and her thumbnails are just like her holding a piece of food and then giving a thumbs down. All right, Hank, this next question comes from Charlie who's six years old um, and yet asked a question that I don't know the answer to, which is something that happens to me all the time in my life as a father. Dear John and Hank, how do you know when you get to the end of the galaxy? Do you go right into the next galaxy? Charlie. Uh, that's a good question because it, because it is a fuzzy boundary uh, between, between the galaxy and not the galaxy anymore. There are sort of like the, the, the number of stars decreases uh, and like, there will be, you know, basically you, you have like there's a hundred around and then there's ten around and then there's one kind of nearby and then there's one really far away. But there's a definite distinction between galaxies. And, and the way that I can best illustrate this is that if you go like half the distance between two galaxies, there won't be mm -hmm. any stars in the sky. So if you were just on a planet in between oh. two galaxies... This this the sky would just be dark. You wouldn't even know that there are stars. You would see probably some smudges that would be other galaxies. Or that would be galaxies. So there wouldn't be other galaxies because you're not in a galaxy. God. God, the universe is so big. Yeah, that's a really sort of messed up weird, weird, so yeah. So the short answer is like, there is no sign that says like, you're now exiting the Milky Way galaxy, but there's a tremendous amount of space between most galaxies. Yeah. And by tremendous, I mean like impossible to wrap my head around. 
Yeah, it's real weird. I told that to Catherine, and we were going through these questions before before now, and I said to Catherine that you could be in space and not have any stars in the sky, and she was like, ah. Yeah, that's one of the, that's one of those things that I almost wish I didn't know. Like, I don't really want to know how big the universe is because it makes my tummy hurt. Hank, I want to ask you another space-related question. We get a version of this question mm. many times every day. And I just think it's time to address it. It comes from Bradley, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm a pretty new nerd fighter, and I would like to thank you both for creating something positive and also addicting. You're welcome, Bradley. Although that is what I said about cigarettes when I was in high school, and it turned out I was wrong. So I hope that we hold up better than Marlboro Lights did. My question is about the moon. I have a friend who saw a documentary and is now convinced that the lunar landing never happened. Oi. That is not a documentary. His reasoning has to do with the live streaming of the event to the entire country. If we still experience significant problems live streaming events now, how could they have done so in 1969? I personally think that, of course, the lunar landing is legit, but this question is interesting to me. What the heck was it like to live stream the lunar landing? How'd they do that? So we, the question we get is different versions of mm. I slash my friend slash my brother slash my cousin believe that the earth is flat or believe that the lunar landing was faked or those are the two big ones these sort of conspiracy theories that have taken over a certain Mm -hmm. subset of online experience uh mostly this subset of online experience where in response to being told you have to do your own research you have to become your own expert people try to become their own experts and along the way um, conclude that the earth is flat or that the moon landing never happened. Right. And, and it's, it, I mean, I think that the like flat earth is, is such an interesting example of this because like, as soon as like stuff gets called into question, you're like, well, I'll look into that. And then you can cut, like, I, I think flat earth is a good example of it because you can, you can see like, obviously this isn't one that is easy to get sucked into, but you can see all of the ways in which people justify it. And that allows you to see it through your own lens. Like what are the things that I might be really susceptible to? Um, and, and so like, how did they technically live stream? It wasn't of course precisely live. Uh, how did they do that? Uh, it's complicated, and NASA worked really hard to make that be a thing, and you can read articles about it. There's uh, you know, one called How NASA Broadcast Neil Armstrong Live from the Moon on uh, from Popular Science, and it's very interesting, and it's complicated, too complicated to talk about on this podcast, uh, in large part because a lot of the technology that they use then doesn't exist, like we don't use it anymore because we've figured out other ways to do it. And I think some of what's beneath the larger phenomenon here is that people feel like they can't trust experts uh, and they feel like they can trust people who explain stuff to them in ways that make sense to them. Yeah. And the truth is, at times when trying to explain stuff, uh, science communicators, at least some of them, can come across as condescending, which can mm-hmm. make somebody shut down and not want to listen. Whereas when people, and I've watched some of these videos about how the earth is flat, they treat their audience in a particular way that makes makes you feel like uh, you're being taken seriously Mm -hmm. and also reflect something that you probably believe to be true on some level, which is that people in power, uh, people with elite status 
use that power and that elite status to deceive people with less power in order to prevent them from getting power. Mm-hmm. Um, that does not mean that the Earth is flat. The Earth is, is, is not flat, and, and we know that for a lot of reasons. It doesn't mean that the moon landing didn't happen, and we know that for lots of reasons. What I do when I'm thinking about whether I believe in a conspiracy theory is I ask myself two questions. The first question I ask is, would this conspiracy theory being true reaffirm my worldview? Mm-hmm. Because if so, that may be a big part of why I believe it's true. And two, how many people would have to be lying to me at the same time for this conspiracy theory to be true? And in the case of both the moon landing and the Earth being flat, we're not talking about dozens of people. We're talking about tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. It's really interesting to me, Hank, because something really similar happened in the early 1970s, right around Watergate, with a huge rise of conspiracy theories and conspiracy theories being taken much more seriously, books of conspiracy theories being published by mainstream publishers, which had never happened before, etc. And we are again in one of these moments where we feel like we cannot trust Mm -hmm. many of the people who um, are in power or many of the power structures that 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 we trust to govern our lives. And I think it's a response to that. But I also think you've got to know that it's a response to that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's 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 a as a as a science communicator, it's frustrating. And and part of part part of it is like, I don't want to engage with it because I think giving it any air at all uh, only only sort of like makes people be like, well, I'm going to check for myself. And then, as you say, like a lot of times what what you hear is is like what the experts are saying doesn't make a lot of sense to me and then there's this alternate viewpoint that does make sense and the reason that it makes sense is not because that viewpoint isn't biased or isn't incorrect it's because it shares your same biases it it comes at the world from the place where you already are whereas the world actually is complicated and messy and weird and when it comes down to how particles work and physics works like that stuff's never going to make intuitive sense because it doesn't make sense and when it comes to how like how nasa broadcast the moon landing live it doesn't like it's really hard to understand and like you can find lots of places in that in that article where you're going to be like well i don't actually i don't get this because you don't get it and i don't get it and i don't care enough like even as a person who's like intensely curious about that stuff, I'm, I'm not curious enough to try and figure out how like UHF H works. Like I just don't right. know. But it's but it comes down to this idea that I can't trust experts, so I'm going to become my own expert. And the problem with that is that you are not going to be, and I don't mean just you, I mean anyone. Right. No one is going to be a really good expert in both particle physics and you know, beer making. No one is going to be a really good expert in both carpentry and astrophysics. Like, or maybe you could do both those, but you can't do everything. And so we have to trust on some level people who devote their professional lives to a subject. We have to at least take them seriously. Which reminds me, John, that this podcast is brought to you by everyone lying to you at the same time. Everyone in the world lying at the same time. It's how all the most dastardly deeds get done. 
that is kind of how I felt in middle school all the time. So now I have a newfound sympathy for that worldview. <laughs> Today's podcast is also brought to you by a vague sense of melancholy, a vague sense of melancholy, calling you on the phone to learn your interest level in Florida State University. This podcast is also brought to you by a statue of David with a very full cup of very hot coffee. Do not move it, mom and dad. There is no particular reason why it has to be right there, but I say that it does. And lastly, today's podcast is brought to you by a starless sky. A starless sky, if you've ever been far enough out in the water not to be able to see land, imagine being far enough out into the universe not to be able to see anything. (laughs) This next question comes from Courtney, who writes, Dear John and Hank, my brother is three years my senior, but he never learned how to drive. I, however, have been driving for almost a year now. Who should be able to sit shotgun when we're both in the car with our mom? Uh, those, uh, d- uh, I don't understand the uh, relationship between the first part yeah. of the question and the second part of the question, but it goes on. I firmly maintain that I have usurped the primogenitor birthright to the front wow. seat. What? Wow. By successfully owning and operating a vehicle first, he does not share this feeling. Who? How huh. did your brother convince you that there is a primogenitor yeah. birthright to the front seat? I, uh, that is that is the most remarkable thing. And then and then next step to think that you could that like you can usurp that through the acquisition of a of just one particular skill that you have arbitrarily selected. Obviously, the person who gets shotgun is the perfect person who says shotgun first, and that needs to have been established early on. And you have maybe already lost that battle. No, 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 no. This is, no, it's not too late, Hank. You've given up on Courtney, and that's a mistake. So here's the deal. I, I think this person is not from the United States. I'm, ju- I'm judging this on the fact that they know how to spell primogenitor, um, <laughs> which is not an idea we have here in America. No. <laughs> really? Unfortunately. Otherwise, I would get all that sweet, sweet mom and dad money, and Hank would be left out in the cold. I don't even know. I don't know what it means either. It means like the first son gets all the money. Okay. Uh, well, the good news is, John, that uh, you're good. Yeah, I mean, I could be better. <laughs> That's, that is the folly of capitalism. You found it. <laughs> I mean, I want to cut that, but I bet Nick's going to keep it in. <laughs> all right. Point being, I assume that this person is from probably maybe England, and therefore they believe that certain rights are passed down from generation to generation to the oldest child or whatever. Uh, I don't understand why shotgun would be one of those rights, but I certainly don't understand why learning how to drive earlier would mean that you no longer get shotgun. Courtney, there is an existing foolproof strategy. I, I got so passionate, I just dropped the phone and Hank can't hear me you anymore. You did. I can't, I can't hear what's happening. <laughs> Hank, Hank, I dropped the phone. Hold on. I'm coming back. So I, was, I was literally pounding my armchair, which resulted in me dropping the phone. <laughs> There is an existing foolproof strategy for this, Courtney, which is that when you are walking to the car, from the moment you leave whatever building you are in to the moment that you are outside in the same outside that you will be in until you reach the car, from that moment, it is possible at any point in that moment to call shotgun. And if you call shotgun, you get to sit in the passenger seat. It is that simple. Mm-hmm. Those are the rules of shotgun. 
forget all of this birthright shotgun crap. You get shotgun by calling shotgun. That's right. That's right. This is not a bad, like we have moved beyond the idea of absolute monarchy. This is about, this is about who is clever enough, fast enough, and willful enough to call shotgun first. But I want to be clear, you can't call shotgun like the moment you get out of the car. You can't call shotgun no. until you are in the same outdoor space yes. that you will continually be in until you That's reach the, rule. the car. Yes. That's the rule. So if you're first out the door and you yell shotgun and they're still inside, that counts. Mm, to me, that's no, no, that's no. an open question. That's, that's that is what that is part of it. It's part of being having a get up and go attitude, being the first out the door, and your mom's gonna appreciate that too. Everybody's out to the car, and you're standing there by the door, and he like your brother's walking up, and you say shotgun before he steps steps on that first paving stone. You are the winner. All right. All right, I buy it. Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, I need to read this Project for Awesome message from Amanda to Ryan and Marshall. Amanda donated to the Project for Awesome to get us to read this message, and we will read it now. For my two favorite guys. Thank you, Amanda. Not John and Hank. Oh. Uh, well... I'll keep reading anyway. Who just happened to be two awesome husbands and dads. I couldn't think of a better way to say how awesome you both are than from two of the coolest people I know. Thanks for being in my life and for being a great husband and son, Aww. Ryan and Marshall. Aww, so Ryan, Marshall, thank you for being a great husband and son. Amanda, thank you for donating to the Project for Awesome and for warming hearts everywhere. Yes. All right, John, we got some com corrections and, and responses. We got Savannah, who is a vocalist on one of the world's largest cruise ships, and just wanted to let us know that there are people who listen to the pod from a boat, though oftentimes they have to download the pod beforehand because Wi-Fi on the boat is not super great. Also, Daniel, who is an engineer at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory working on the Mars helicopter. He oh, was Daniel, you have Hank's dream job. You, well, you certainly have my attention. This is very exciting. I, I was ecstatic <laughs> to hear Hank discuss our project in the recent podcast episode. I do have a very small correction, and I got very nervous when I read that, uh, but it's okay. Regarding a statement that Hank made, there will be no way to test precisely how good at its job it will be until it is there because it won't be able to fly on a place that is exactly like Mars until it gets there. And I wanted to mention, this is Daniel again, I wanted to mention that while this is technically true, so I guess it's not quite a correction, we are in the middle of an extensive test campaign to simulate Mars-like conditions as best we can. For example, in this video that NASA released, which we'll put on the Patreon, there's footage of our free flight testing. This test was conducted inside our 25-foot diameter vacuum chamber at Mars pressure while an offload system simulated Mars's gravity. The health I don't know how that works, but it's very cool. The helicopter successfully ascended, traveled to a waypoint, and then landed multiple times over the course of the test. Hopefully we will see similar success in all of our tests, in case, in which case we can be reasonably confident that the helicopter will work on Mars when it gets there. Thankfully, there are no lions on Mars, Daniel. I mean, that we know of yet. We won't know for sure till we have a helicopter fly over the whole right. planet and check. That's amazing. That's why, we can't have, that's why we can't have humans on Mars yet. There could be a lion. <laughs> Just tank in case you thought we were going to get through that question without Daniel thinking that neither of us is an idiot. <laughs> I mean, John, you never know. There could be whole underground systems of caves that are at high pressure and contain mostly lions. I mean, is there any possibility that Mars is flat? 
that's that's often something that I've I've wondered about flat Earth. Like, do they think that all the planets are flat? Like, are they just like disks out there in space, or like we see them rotating? So we know that other planets aren't flat. It's just that Earth is flat, and none of the other planets are. I don't really. I don't think I don't think we're going to convince a single flat earther on this podcast. As you know, I have become increasingly convinced that no one who currently believes anything uh, on the internet <laughs> can have their mind changed by anyone else or anything else on the internet. Yeah. Is it time for the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon then? Oh, it is time for the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Do you want me to go first with the Mars news? Because it's very big and it's very good and it's very, very big. And there's multiple Yes, parts. yes, yes. So uh, occasionally NASA will have these press conferences where they say, we've got some big Mars news. And when NASA says, we've got some big Mars news and we're going to do a press conference, if you're a science communicator, you look at who's going to be at the press conference and you can have a pretty good idea of what kind of news it's going to be. And usually you're like, well, I looked at the press conference, I looked at who's on it, and it's not going to be about the fact that there's life on Mars. But this time, kind of like maybe this would have been the panel of people, like partially that they would have talking about the fact that they oh. found like life on Mars. And so, of course, oh. like all the science communication world is like, it's not life on Mars. Like, I'm not like I feel like I would have gotten somebody like somebody would have leaked something to me. I would have heard about this. There would have been like a lot more hubbub. There would be a lot more buzz. Um, but of course everyone is like, but maybe, um, and so what in fact, two different things, one, um, after Curiosity's, you know, hanging out on Mars for a long time now, it's been able to get regular measurements of methane concentrations in the Martian atmosphere to the extent that it can now see a seasonal variation. So in the summertime, there's more methane in the Martian atmosphere, and in the wintertime, there's less. Here on Earth, the atmosphere remains almost entirely consistent except for water vapor throughout seasons. Um, Weird. Why? So they think that, uh, one, this definitely means that methane, like it seems like methane is being released continuously and thus it is being replenished by some system. So more methane is being created inside of Mars. And then as the surface of Mars heats up, there's these like methane containing compounds that are like icy methane water compound things called clathrates. And the clathrates mm-hmm. will, uh, you know, sub- sublimate. So go directly from a solid to a gaseous form and the methane will get released and then uh, and then leave the atmosphere the way that the Martian atmosphere leaves the planet or resolidify onto the surface in the wintertime. But it continue, there continues to be the same amount every year. So it's like it's coming from somewhere and they think probably some geologic process uh, which would indicate a pretty active geology inside of Mars, which is not something that we've super anticipated. Um, and the the other potential source of the methane could be microorganisms. That is not something that they're talking about actively or seriously, but that is how methane gets produced on Earth, is almost entirely by microorganisms, though it is also produced by some geologic processes, hmm. I think. Um, and then there's the other piece of the news, which is like very like also life-related, that they in mudstone, which is a sedimentary rock that gets left behind after, you know, like from silt on the bottom of a lake. So they, they crushed up some mudstone, basically heated it up a bunch and found a lot of different organic compounds, meaning, meaning compounds that contain carbon. And uh, all of life on Earth is carbon-based, uh, which is why we call carbon atoms organic compounds. And, uh, and what they can't tell is precisely what compound these compounds were 
originally because Curiosity cannot dig very deep into a rock. It can only go like a few millimeters or centimeters. Um, and all of those compounds over the last three billion years since they were first trapped in that mudstone would have been uh, would have deteriorated because of like being hit by solar radiation. So mm-hmm. there's no way to tell what those compounds were originally, but they are definitely like, you know, chains of carbon compounds, which can again be created by biological or non-biological systems. Like comets have amino acids on them, not because there's life there, but because, you know, lots of different processes with water and sunlight can create amino acids. So uh, what does it mean? It means that like Curiosity is making strides toward better understanding the chemistry and geology of Mars. And also that like it is very Earth-like and back three, three and a half billion years ago, it would have been like a place that looks pretty habitable, pretty you know, friendly to life as we know it. So this is something I've been wondering a lot about lately, Hank. Is there really a bright, bright line between alive and not alive when it comes to organic compounds? Because it seems to me that there are some fuzzinesses, at least in life on Earth. Yeah, there are definitely fuzzinesses in terms of what what life is, chemical life. you know, like viruses, people will say aren't alive, but they are capable of replicating themselves. They are capable of moving around. Right. Not really moving around, but like sort of getting to the place where they want to be. And um, and so, like, yes, there's there's a little bit of co- complexity there. Really, the idea is that the, the sort of thought in the sort of space between chemistry and biology world is... Um, is that if you have a self-replicating chemical system, it will move itself toward complexity in a way that like, like in sort of an inevitable fashion that will make it clear that whatever that is, it is life. Um, and so and so the idea is that on like a planetary like science level, on a planetary biology level, that you're gonna like, if there's anything like life, there will be something that is obviously life. Now, whether right. whether we're able to sort of like understand it as life, because the, all the tests that we currently use to determine whether there's like a living system happening are really based on the chemistry of our life, that's up in the air. And also like a huge question, because if if the system that that life uses is identical to the life on our planet, then one that raises the question of whether that's that's just, you know, like. It, it, contamination from, from Earth, from Earth right. or whether like all like life on Mars and Earth arose from the same source, whether that was Mars life getting to Earth and and all all of us being Martians or Earth life getting to Mars and and existing there for a little while after like hitchhiking on an asteroid uh, like an like a asteroid or a meteorite that was ejected from the surface of one of those planets um, or some external third source that just likes like. Seeds the entire universe with life um, is is the big question. Well, I mean that is a big, interesting, weird question. <laughs> Speaking of big, interesting, weird questions, when is <laughs> AFC Wimbledon going to move into their new stadium? So the hope had been, Hank, that uh, the new Plow Lane would be finished in time for the beginning of the 2019-2020 season. That's not uh, next season, but the season after. And uh, that also would mean that even if we were to get relegated next season, which we're definitely favorites for at the moment, 
we would begin the life at the New Plow Lane at the very worst in League Two. So still in the football league, still a full-time professional team and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Hank, I don't know if you've ever engaged in a house renovation project, but if you have, you're likely familiar with contractor timelines and mm. then the actual yeah, sure. uh, progress of days and nights as they are observed with the sun rising and setting and how different those the sense of days are between... Um, what your contractor thinks a day looks like and what the sun thinks a day looks like. Uh, That appears to not only be a problem for residential home renovations in Indianapolis, but also uh, a problem for AFC Wimbledon. Uh, It looks like the demolition of the Greyhound uh, stadium where Plow Lane will be built is going slower than expected. And now it looks like at the earliest, uh, AFC Wimbledon will not be moving into the new Plow Lane until midway through that 2019-2020 season, at least according to an article in the Evening Standard. So ah. we'll see. Uh, but, you know, the race for life on Mars versus the race to get to the new plow lane. It's back on. (laughs) Well, as long as, uh, as long as we get humans there by 2028, uh, in both places, I'm good. (laughs) Okay. All right, Hank, what was your phrase of the week? (gasps) I completely forgot about phrases of the week. I mean, you even wrote phrase of the week in the, in the, the document. Did I? No, yes, somebody else phrase did the that. Week. I didn't do what that. What was my phrase of the week? What was my phrase of the I week? I do not know, John. I am bad at the game. I apologize to everyone. Well, I don't even think we would still be playing the game if it weren't for all of these lovely Project for Awesome donors who donated phrases of the week. This week's was donated by Otto, and my phrase of the week was a gang of turkeys. God dang it. I, that was exact, <laughs> That was the thing I was trying to think of. I was like, what was between the scissor and the, uh, the other thing? Oh, God, a gang of turkeys is beautiful, John. Thank Thank you, Otto, and uh, for that wonderful gang of turkeys, because it allowed us to have a really enjoyable moment together. So thanks, Otto. Hey, what did we learn today? Well, I also got to say that Kelly Naylor suggested my phrase of the week, which was jello salad, which I feel like I could have perfectly easily gotten into the podcast somewhere. Totally. 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 (laughs) Hey, Lauren, this is a jello salad calling from Florida State University. (laughs) That's great. uh, Hold on. Sorry if you heard that. I just got a bit of a jiggle. Uh, But yeah, no, I'm back. Hi. How are you today? (laughs) All right, John. What did we learn today? Well, we learned that there are places in space where the sky ain't got no stars. We learned that you got invited into that World Cup pool because everyone expects you to lose. (laughs) we learned that no matter what the situation is if at all possible wait to panic and finally we learned that john feeds his children the less desirable pieces of bread (laughs) oh man good thing they don't listen to the pod Hank, thank you for potting with me. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, again, you can go over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash dearhankandjohn and see uh, all kinds of special updates. You don't have to pay to get them, although if you want to pay, you're more than welcome to. We're about to go record our Patreon-only podcast, This Week in Ryan's, which is just 
the 10 worst podcasting minutes of your week. Uh, but we appreciate everybody who uh, donates there and listens to it. And also everybody who sends in questions. Thank you for all your wonderful questions. If you have questions for us, please email us. It's hankandjohn at gmail.com. This podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. It's produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. The music that you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, be awesome. awesome.